Well, good morning and welcome to Pinion Hills Community Church. Who's excited to be here this morning? Good. Me too. I'm also excited for next Sunday. Next Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday, and we're having football Sunday here, which means that we're going to be watching some interviews of some professional athletes, and they're going to be sharing why they love Jesus and their stories. So I think it's going to be inspiring and motivating. So invite your friends, invite your coworkers, perhaps people that don't, don't normally come with you to a normal church service, because next week is not going to be a normal church service. It's going to be a lot of fun. With that, we want to encourage you, wear football gear next week. Wear a jersey, wear a shirt, wear anything you know from your, from your favorite. NFL team, and I'll tell you, I'm a little bit torn, because I know in this congregation, there's, there's a few people who are perhaps 49ers fans, four of you, and perhaps there's a few people that are Chiefs fans, 16 of you, and there's other people, you know, you're fans of, of teams that are perhaps not in the Super Bowl, I know that we have some people who are Seahawks fans, for example, One of you who's embarrassed. You're like, ah, I have to clap. What about Packers fans? Any Packers fans? Yeah, okay. Four of you as well. So, so here's, here's my assessment of Pinion Hills as a community. I think what it really boils down to is that the majority of people, you have a, a preference from one of two teams. You either love the Broncos or the Cowboys. <laughs> and here's, here's where I'm torn with next week with Football Sunday. I am a Cowboys fan. The reason why is because it's God's favorite team. Uh, so I, too, you know, I, just, I want to be in alignment with God's will. Uh, but my wife is a Broncos fan. And so here's, here's what I'm torn with. I'm torn, which jersey do I wear next Sunday? Because I want, to, I want to be compassionate and loving to people in the community. And so, you know, I don't want to just rub cowboys in your face. Not like there's anything to rub in your face. But, but I don't want to just rub it in your face. And so, so here's, here's what I'm willing to do. And my wife doesn't even know this yet. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out there as an offer. I'm going to offer for the, the Cowboys fans to scream at the top of your lungs here in just a second. And I have a little decibel reader on my watch. And if you can scream so loud, louder than the Broncos fans, then I and my wife are going to wear Cowboys jerseys next, next week. <laughs> now, that being said, if the Broncos fans, I'm going to have the Cowboys, you get to scream first to set the standard, set the bar. But if the Broncos fans cheer louder than the Cowboys fans, then my wife and myself will both wear Broncos jerseys next Sunday. So, fair enough? Okay, so let me get, let me get my little decibel reader out. All right, Cowboys fans first. Unless you, you hate the Broncos, then you can also join in the Cowboys crew. So, count of three. I, 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 don't rush the stage or anything like that. Don't be crazy, because I know some of you Cowboys fans can be crazy. Don't run up here. You know, security's going to take you out and tackle you. But, but at the count of three, I, I want you to scream as loud as you can if you want me to wear... Ho, 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 ho! Hey, if you boo, you're welcome to boo, because it adds to my decibels for the Cowboys. Uh, are you ready? Here we go. Three, two, one. Yes. Yes. You set a good standard, Cowboys fans. That was 107 decibels. All right, Broncos fans. Let's see what you got. On the count of three. Count of three. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to, again, don't rush the stage or anything, babe. Don't run up here on the stage and cheat. <laughs> Count of three, Broncos fans or anybody that wants me to wear a Broncos jersey. Oh, hold on. It disappeared. Are you ready? Three, two, one. Yeah! 
Are you kidding me? 109 decibels. Shoot me. I didn't think there was any chance. I, I thought for sure we had it in the back. Oh my gosh. Next Sunday, I'm going to be wearing a Broncos jersey. Man. <laughs> As underwear. <laughs> Well, I would encourage you, wear whatever football gear that you have as well, and come join my wife and I as we're wearing Broncos gear next week for Football Sunday. So that's next Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, February 2nd. But right now, we're going to continue on in our series called 2020, which is a series we've been in the last couple of weeks. And it's all about addressing the question of, how's your vision? Are you seeing clearly the year that lies ahead of you, the way that God sees the year that lies ahead of you? It's all based on a King James verse from the Bible, Proverbs 29, 18, which says this. It says, where there is no vision... The people perish. People don't want that. You don't want to perish. You, you want to have a vision. God wants to have a vision for your life. So that's why over the, the course of, of the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how important it is to have a good vision. But we don't want to just have a good vision. We want to have a godly vision. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. We don't want just to, just to have a good vision. We want a godly vision as well. So two weeks ago, we created an acronym to make a vision statement using vision as the acronym, V-I-S-I-O-N. And here's what the, the acronym stands for. Vision is value your individual strengths and interests for the sake of other people now. Now this is... God's vision for your life. This is based on scripture. In fact, it's based on the, the greatest commandment. Jesus was asked at one point, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God and love others. Quite frankly, everything else in life is just details. But you're loving God and loving others by using this vision. When you're valuing your individual strengths and interests, the way that God has created you and equipped you, you're bringing honor and glory to him. He's designed you for using those things. But when you're using them for the sake of other people, blessing people, loving people, you're loving others at the same time. So this is God's vision for your life. If you, if you weren't here for the last couple of weeks, perhaps go back and watch the live stream and watch me talk about it a little bit more and, and unpack it. But for right now, that's the vision that God has for our lives. But to be honest with you, that's not what the enemy wants for us, is it? The enemy sees us trying to focus in and have laser focus on what God wants us to focus on, the vision that God has for our lives, but the enemy wants us to focus on anything but that. He's going to try to distract us over here, and he's going to try to distract us over here. If God wants you to look over here, he's going to try to distract you over here. If God wants you to look over here, the enemy's going to try to distract you over here. We talked about this last week. It kind of reminds me of a, of a movie called The Three Amigos. Anybody ever seen The Three Amigos before? Watch it. It came out years ago starring uh, Steve Martin. And Steve Martin's character in The Three Amigos, there's at one point, and there's this one scene in the movie where he's walking along a wall, and he's trying to get the attention of his other two amigos, I guess, because they're three and whatever. So he's trying to get the attention of his two amigos, and they're just not responding. They're not understanding he's trying to get their attention. I wanted to share this clip with you from The Three Amigos. Check it out. Look up here, look up here, look up here! Ah! Hey! 
a funny seed from that movie. And, and as funny as it is, to be honest with you, it kind of reminds me of our enemy. You know, when you're, when you're focused on what God wants you to focus on, the enemy, it's like he comes over and he's like, woo, woo, oh, look over here, oh, look over here, oh, look, look over here, look over here, look over here, look. and he's trying to get your attention, trying to distract you, and you're like, no, I will not look over there, I'm going to be focused on what God wants me to focus on. He's like, And finally you look, and he's like, where'd you look? <laughs> he doesn't have anything good for you. He's just trying to distract you. Once you get your focus off of whatever what, what God wants you to focus on. And to be honest with you, this is a tactic that has gone back for thousands of years from the enemy. Look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 3. Chapter 11, verse 3. He says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, Paul is speaking to the church. He's saying, I'm fearful. I'm fearful you're going to be led astray. Now, mind you, he's saying this 2,000 years ago to the church, people following after Jesus. But he's saying, I'm fearful that just as Eve was led astray, you're going to be led astray. He's saying, just like in the very beginning of time she was led astray, my concern for you is that you too will be led astray by the enemy. See, the tactics of the enemy have been the same tactics for thousands of years. He's trying to lead you astray from going the direction that God wants you to go. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The tactic of the enemy is to lead you astray from following God's way. It's a tactic of the enemy from thousands of years back, from the beginning of time. The tactic of the enemy, the tactic of the enemy is to lead you astray from following God's way. So if that's the case, if this is the same tactic he's been using for thousands of years, then perhaps if we know the tactic, if we know the distractions he's going to try to distract us with, then perhaps we can do a better job blocking those distractions out. So this morning, we're going to look at six distractions, six common distractions that the enemy will commonly use to try to get people to lead them astray from following God's way. Again, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Distraction number one is this. It's unconfessed sin. It's the distraction that the enemy is going to try, try to use to get you to not focus on what God wants you to focus on. Remember the story of Adam and Eve. God creates the Garden of Eden. He creates man and woman. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden and says, hey, paradise, this is all for you. All these trees, all these plants, all these vegetables, all these animals, it's all for you. You can, you can do whatever you want. You can have whatever you want. It is a huge menu for you. Anything except this one tree. You can't touch the fruit of this tree. You can't have that fruit. Anything else in the garden is yours, but except this tree. Now, Why? Why have I said you can't touch this tree? Because I've got to give you some sort of boundaries, some sort of rules. Otherwise, there's no differentiation between right and wrong. So I'm giving you the option to obey me or not. You can't touch the fruit from this tree, but everything else is yours. So God walks off. So does Adam. Adam walks off because he's a man and he's exploring the garden, I guess. <laughs> so he wanders off, but Eve stays next to the tree. And she's looking at the tree and she's walking around the tree. She's like, mm, that tree looks good. That fruit looks good. She's, she starts getting close to the tree. She's looking at all the fruit. And she gets real close and she sniffs the fruit. She says, that fruit looks good. That fruit smells good. I bet that fruit tastes good. And she grabs the fruit, takes a bite. And I bet in her mind, she was probably like, wow, that tastes like a mega stuff Oreo. 
<laughs> she says, hey, Adam, hey, come on over here. Quit checking out my bum. Come on over here and eat this fruit. So Adam walks over, and she hands, hands this piece of fruit to Adam, and he, he tries it and takes a bite. He's like, mmm, honey, honey, that is not a mega stuff Oreo. That's a most stuff Oreo. That is, that is premium fruit right there. And then all of a sudden, God starts walking back in the garden. So they split, and they book it because they know they weren't supposed to touch the fruit from the tree. So God starts coming back in the garden. That's where we pick up Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. The man and his wife heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the breeze of the day, and Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God's walking around. Hey, Adam, Eve, where are you? You were just here a second ago. Where did you guys go? What, are we playing hide and seek? What, are we playing cat and mouse? What are we doing right now? Where were they? They were hiding. Why were they hiding? Not only because they were naked and afraid, <laughs> but also because they were embarrassed and ashamed. Why were they embarrassed and ashamed? Because they just did what they weren't supposed to do. They had unconfessed sin in their lives. You see, the, the natural response when we have unconfessed sin in our, in our lives is that we want to hide from God. We want to distance ourselves from God because we're embarrassed and we're ashamed and we have guilt. So we, want to, we don't want to be next to a holy, perfect God. So we distance ourselves, not because God wants to, us to be distanced, but because we do that to ourselves. We've, we've distanced ourselves when, when we have unconfessed sin in our lives. We sometimes feel the guilt, the shame, the weight of those decisions on our shoulders. But if we would just simply confess it and come clean, God says he forgives us for our sins. David talks about this in Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent, speaking about when he had sin, unconfessed sin in his life, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped in the heat of the summer. He's saying, my unconfessed sin was like a weight. It sapped my energy. It was just, it was messing with my head. But then he says in verse five, he says, then I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You see, here's the interesting thing. When, when we have unconfessed sin in our lives, we naturally want to be away from God. We want to hide from God. But if we would just come clean, he forgives us. He wipes us clean. He says, okay, I'm going to throw your sin as far as the east is from the west. Look at what it says in 1 John 1, 8 through 9. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us for our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, unconfessed sin is an unnecessary wedge in our relationship between ourselves and God. It doesn't have to be there. We could come clean. We could say what we've done. But we're ashamed. And all of a sudden, when we, we want to be focused on what God has for us. We want God's vision for our lives. There's a distraction that pops up because we are becoming our own distraction. We're, we're not confessing. We're not coming clean. So, so how do we fix that? Come clean. Whatever you haven't, haven't confessed, it's not like God doesn't already know what you've done. He already knows what you've done. When Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden, you think God really didn't know where they were hiding. He already knows where they are. He knows what they've done. God knows where you are. He knows what you've done. So we need to confess to God. And he forgives us. He promises to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. But in addition to confessing to God, it's helpful when we confess to other people. Look at what the brother of Jesus, James, says. James 5.16. 
He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, I don't think James' suggestion we go shout our sins from the rooftops. I don't think he's saying post, you know, the worst things you've ever done on social media. But perhaps a couple people around you that know you the best, that care about you, maybe come clean to them. Because when they pray for you, you can be healed. Why is there healing when you confess to other people? Not because they have the power to heal you, but because you've confessed it. You've brought things out to light. There's a better likelihood that you're not going to repeat the same sins again. You're not going to go down that same path again because you've brought it out to people. You've built in accountability when you tell other people. You see, there's something magical. When you, when you allow something that's hidden within you to come out, when the truth comes out, it sets you free. That's what Jesus says. John 8, 32, he says, the truth will set you free. Some of us need to be truthful. Some of us need to be set free because we have this unconfessed sin in our lives and nobody knows. And we think that God doesn't know, but we're, we're distancing ourselves from God and it's becoming a distraction from following where God wants us to go. That's the first distraction of the enemy is unconfessed sin. The second distraction of the enemy is this, it's selfishness. Now the very nature of being selfish is that you're not concerned about what God wants you to focus on. You're concerned about what you want you to focus on. That's what it is to be selfish. When you're not concerned about God's will, you're more concerned about your will. But let me take you back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Right before Jesus is crucified, the night before he goes to the cross, he's in this garden. He's got his disciples around. They're falling asleep. That's another story. But he's praying. Jesus is up late at night praying the night before he's, he's going to the cross for you and I. And here's part of his prayer, Luke twenty-two forty-two. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Don't make me go to the cross. Don't let me be murdered in broad daylight. Take this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. Here's Jesus saying, I don't want to do this, but it's not my will, Father. It's your, it's your will. May your will be done. You see, friends, sometimes our will is not the same as God's will. What you want for your life is not always going to be what God wants for your life. Your plans for your life may not always be God's plans for your life, but some of us need to adopt those words to be our own words. The same things that Jesus said, the same words that Jesus said, not my will, Here's my preference, God, but not my will. May your will be done. Because when it's all about our will, it becomes selfishness that becomes a distraction from what God's will is in our lives. That's the second distraction that we see. The third distraction from the enemy, trying to lead you astray from following God's way, is this. Is stealing credit. Stealing credit. Now, here's what I mean by stealing credit. You might look at your whole life and think, look at all the things I've achieved. Look at my successes. Look at my house. Look at my car. Look at my family. Look at my kids. Look at all the stuff that I've earned. And if you have that mental picture, if you have that mentality that it's all the stuff that you deserve, the things that you've earned, then perhaps you're forgetting who gave you the strengths and the talents and the abilities to make a living. You're for perhaps forgetting that God's given you everything you have. Perhaps you're thinking it's all you because of you, because of how you're equipped and wired. Maybe you think that you have earned everything, but you sometimes forget that God's given you everything. And when we think it's all about us and our talents and our abilities and our skills and our experience, we sometimes lose sight of where credit is due. When we steal God's credit, that is a form of, of, uh, of pride. Look at what uh, David says in Psalm 115. He says, not to us, Lord. Not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. To his name be the glory. Not to our names, 
to his name, no matter what you've achieved, no matter what you've accomplished. That's why I'm excited about some of these NFL testimonies for next week that you'll hear is you'll hear about these guys that are phenomenally talented, but they're giving glory back to God. They're giving him the glory where glory is deserved. So that can become a distraction in our lives of stealing God's credit. That's the third distraction. The fourth distraction is this. It's pride. Pride can become a distraction because, quite frankly, pride convinces you that you don't need God in your life. I think this is probably the number one reason why people don't come to church in the, in the first place. They don't feel like they need God. Perhaps it's the number one reason why people leave the church. Because maybe they came because something hit the fan in their lives. They came because they wanted prayer. They, they came because they had questions, but then all of a sudden things got better in their life and they stopped coming. Because they no longer have a need for Jesus. They feel like they have a, no longer have a need for God's word. They no longer have a need for God. And so because of that, they feel like they have all the answers. They have the strength that they, they need to get through life. That's a form of pride. Look what Solomon says about pride in Proverbs 16. He says, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. That term haughty in the original language, in the, in the Hebrew language, that's a, a, a word called gopa. And, and what that, mean, that word means is height. Not physical stature or how high or how tall you are. But if you look up haughty in the dictionary, the, the word haughty means arrogantly superior. What Solomon is saying, he's like, when you are arrogantly superior, when you think that you're higher than other people, you think that you're better than other people, that's pride creeping into your life. When you think that you're better than anybody else, you are arrogantly superior than other people. And here's the bummer about pride, is that when it, it creeps into your life, in this particular area of your life, it begins to infect other areas of your life. And it creeps over here in this area of your life and begins to infect other areas of your life. And before you know it, you feel like you are arrogantly superior to everything and everyone, including perhaps God. But you're not superior to God. And it's some, sometimes I, I don't know if anybody would actually say that out loud, that you think that you're bigger or better, smarter or stronger than God. I don't think anybody in this room or watching online, I don't think you would actually say that out loud. But based on your actions, aren't you communicating that? When you do what you want to do rather than what God says you should do, you're basically saying, my ways are better than your ways, God. I'm smarter than you are, God. You're basically saying, I'm bigger. My ways are higher than yours. But God reminds us in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 8. God says this. He says, for, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. He's establishing there's a differentiation between man's ways and my ways. They're not the same. We think differently. Our thoughts and ways are different. But then he clarifies which one is better, which one is higher. In the very next verse, verse 9, God says this. He says that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He's saying, God's saying, my ways are higher than your ways. And when we have pride in our lives, we're, we're convincing ourselves, no, 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 no. My ways are higher than God's ways. God's trying to recalibrate us and start trying to bring us back to reality, saying, no, 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 my ways are higher. I am, my ways are better than your ways. They're different, but my ways are higher than your ways. And when we allow ourselves to believe differently, all of a sudden that becomes a distraction. It becomes a distraction because we're not concerned about God's ways. We're more concerned about our ways because we think that our ways are better. That can become, become a distraction, the distraction of pride. That's number four. Number five is this. It's worry. Now, sometimes people are like, really? Worry is a distraction? How is worry a distraction? Well, worry, quite frankly, is a byproduct of pride. Well, let me explain what I mean. If you trust God 100% with your entire life, there's nothing to worry about. 
Because if you genuinely trust him with everything in your life, the good, bad, and the ugly, every scenario of your life, if you're saying, God, I trust you with everything, there's nothing to worry about. No matter how the outcome is, there's nothing to worry about because God's got it. But when we worry, it's because we don't fully trust God with everything in our life. Well, I trust you over here, God, but not over here. This makes me worried, so I'm going to take back control. And when we begin to take back control, we're basically saying, I know better than you do, God. And I don't, I don't know about the future. I, this makes me nervous. It makes me concerned. It makes me worried. But my ways, I'm, I'm going to take control back because I think my ways are better than your ways. And, and you're not trusting God. You have to trust God. Jesus says it in Matthew 6.25. He says, do not worry. Now, I'd be a liar if I stood up here on stage and said, I never worry as a pastor. There are times that I do worry. But these words are convicting to me, just like they perhaps are to you. Jesus says, do not worry about your life. And then he goes on and explains what you shouldn't worry about. Do not worry about your life, what you should eat, what you should drink, about your body or what you should wear. Here he rattles off five different things that you shouldn't worry about. Your life, what you eat, what you drink, about your body, what you wear. Quite frankly, I think those five things make up probably 99% of the things that you and I might worry about. About what you should eat, what you should drink, about your body, about the diagnosis perhaps you got, about what other people think of you about the perception other people have of you, about what you should wear, about your overall life, when you're going to live till, when you're going to die, what it's going to look like. We worry about all these different things, and for what? Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your body, what you wear. Then he continues on. He says, is life not more than food, than the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than the birds? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these flowers. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. Verse 34, let this sink in. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. When you and I worry, we're saying, I don't trust you, God. We need to relinquish control and say, I trust you with everything, every part of my life, every situation in my life. I'm going to trust you with everything, God. God doesn't want you to focus on things that make you worry because he's got those things. Focus where God wants you to focus instead. Don't let worry become a distraction. The fifth, that's the fifth distraction. The sixth and final distraction is this. It's a lack of communication. Specifically, a lack of communication with God. Now, in my opinion, I think this is perhaps the most dangerous of all the distractions we've talked about this morning. Now, there's two reasons why. One reason why I think it's perhaps one of the most dangerous of the distractions is because when you have a lack of communication with God, it breeds all the other five distractions we've already talked about. So it sets you up for failure for all the other ones as well. But there's another reason why I think this is particularly dangerous. And the reason why is because most people think it's not dangerous. When, when people look at distractions, they're like, oh yeah, unconfessed sin. Yeah, I, I understand that. And pride in my life. Yeah, I understand that. But a lack of communication, really, that's, that's a bad thing. It is a bad thing. 
We don't make it a big deal, but it's a big deal to God. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but should live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is making a comparison that communication between you and God is as important as you eating food. He's drawing that comparison. Man doesn't live on bread alone. He lives on the word of God. Yet we don't oftentimes look at it that way, do we? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you ate one meal a week? Most people eat three meals a day. You have perhaps a, a caloric intake of 2,000 calories. Or, or maybe you're on like an adjustment. Maybe you're on a diet of some sort. Maybe you're on like intermittent fasting and you don't eat until 11 a.m. And then you don't eat until after, you know, after 8 p.m. Or, or maybe, maybe you have uh, other small meals throughout the day. You have like seven small meals to kickstart your metabolism. Or maybe you eat essential oils. I don't know. We all, we all have our things, right? But most people... Most people are eating several times throughout the day, regardless of whatever that looks like. We're eating several times throughout the day. But can you imagine? Jesus is making the comparison. Your communication with God is just as important as eating. Can you imagine if you ate one meal a week? (laughs) You'd show up to church, and you'd be like, I'm hungry. I'm angry. I'm hangry. I'm upset, and I might punch you in the face. That's the reality. It's like that Snickers commercial, you're, you're not you when you're hungry, right? If you had one meal a week, you wouldn't be yourself. And here's the crazy thing. People oftentimes come to church one time in the entire week. That's the only communication they have with God all week long. One hour for one week, that's all God gets. And here's the crazy thing, that's above average. Because you've heard me talk about before, the average person comes to church once out of every three weeks. Can you imagine having a meal once every three weeks? And that's average. That means there's, there's some people that come more frequently and there's some people that come less frequently. There's some people, hundreds of people, perhaps thousands of people throughout San Juan County, that that's not their norm. Their norm, they come to church two times throughout the entire year. I go to church on Christmas and Easter. Imagine for a second. That a skinny man shows up in a doctor's office. Says, doctor, I don't understand what's going on. I, 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 don't, I don't know why I don't have any energy. I have no strength. I feel like my body's falling apart. I'm depressed. I don't, I don't understand what's going on. Imagine the doctor looks back at him and says, well, when's the last time you had a meal? Imagine this skinny guy saying, well, six months ago. What do you think the doctor would say? The doctor would be like, are you out of your mind? You come to the doctor's office and you don't know what's going on. You don't know why you have no strength and no energy. I don't even know how you're still alive. And you come into the doctor's office and you have the questions as far as what's going on. You need to eat. You're malnourished. How many times do I have conversations with people in my office? Pastor, my marriage has fallen apart. I bump into people at Walmart. Pastor, can you pray for me? I'm depressed. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. It seems like everything's falling down. And I ask the question, well, how's your relationship with God? Oh, well, you know, I, I go to church every couple months or so. Well, you know, when I have time, when I get around to it. But I'm busy. I travel a lot. I got a lot of stuff going on. But I can't figure out why my life is falling apart. Newsflash. (laughs) When we're far away from God, when there's a lack of communication, it's very difficult to see what God has in store for you. When you're far away from God, it's hard for you to understand what his vision is for your life. It's hard for you to know your next step that you should take when you're distancing yourself from God, when there's a lack of communication. David says this in Psalm 119. He says, God, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. 
He describes God's word as a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. Let me, let me demonstrate what I'm talking about. Chris, if you could kill the lights, the house lights. Let's kill all the lights for a second. I know some of you are freaked out right now. Oh, I've got to turn on a flashlight on my phone. <laughs> some of you are busted because you're on your phone right now. <laughs> and I can see your glowing face. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm going to turn the lights back on in just a second. But imagine this is how you went through life all the time. Imagine this is how you go through life and you start stubbing your toe and you're like, ah, what did I hit my toe on? And you start cracking your shin on stuff. You start bleeding. You get start getting scars because you're tripping over yourself and you're falling. And you're wondering, why am I falling? Why am I bleeding? Why am I getting these scars? And it's because, friend, you turned off the lights. So God's word is a lamp to your feet. And who turned off the light? Not God. You did. You turned it off. And some of you need to turn the light back on. And you need, you need to turn the light on. Perhaps the light in your life doesn't, doesn't get rid of all the darkness that surrounds you in San Juan County, but perhaps it's enough to light up your next step on your feet. Perhaps that's enough. Perhaps you need to turn the light back on because you were the one that turned it off in the beginning. And we wonder why our lives are going the way that they're going. We wonder why we're, we're buried with, with, with the weight of regret and shame and re remorse. Why we're worried about the future is because we're not connected to God. So turn the lights back on. <laughs> Perhaps you need to turn the lights back on. Perhaps you're the one that turned the lights off in the beginning. God hasn't distanced himself from, from you. Perhaps you are the one that says, oh, I don't use God's light, his word, as a light to my feet, a lamp to my path. Perhaps you're the one that caused that. Friend, you've got to have a communication with God. A lack of communication is going to become a distraction as you're tripping over stuff throughout your life. Don't allow that to become a distraction. You need to have communication with God. You need to read his word. You need to pray to him. And perhaps your prayers are a little bit like this picture. Check out this photo. Perhaps your prayers are like that. Dear Jesus, blah. But that's okay. Because God just wants communication with you. And even if your prayers are messy and you don't even know what to say, that's okay. A lack of communication with God, that's not okay because it becomes a distraction from God's plan. The, the path that he has in store for you, the vision that he has for you. So friends, this morning we've, we've gone through six different common distractions that the enemy wants to use to distract you, to lead you astray from following God's way. Here's, here's the six, as we recap, the six distractions that we've talked about this morning. Number one, unconfessed sin. Two, selfishness. Three, stealing credit. Four, pride. Five, worry. And six, a lack of communication. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I got a couple of these in my life right now. Maybe you've got one. Maybe you've got some of these. But as, as we wrap up our time here this morning, let me encourage you with a verse from Psalm 146. This is the Lord gives sight to the blind. You might have been distracted. You might have been, been taken off course. You might not have God's vision for your life right now because of all sorts of different reasons. But the Lord gives sight to the blind. So as we wrap up this entire three-week series of 2020, let me wrap up the entire thing with two verses from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2 says this. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. entangles. Then let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
faith. Friends, sometimes you're distracted and you've been easily entangled in all these sins and these distractions, but you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he is your pioneer. He is your perfecter. He will bring and restore your vision back. You might have had blurry vision. You might have been seeing all sorts of different things as far as the wrong way to go, but God has a plan for your life. And you need to turn the lights back on. You need to confess your sin. You need to have a, con- a, a conversation with him. You need to pray to him. Because when you fix your eyes on Jesus, he restores your vision. So friends, some of you need to simply fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of your faith. And he will restore your sight. God, we come to you now and we say thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the fact that no matter how many distractions we have around us in our lives, that we can hone back in, we can have laser focus on what we need to be focused on, your vision for our life, and it could be as simple as fixing our eyes back on Jesus. So God, if there's anything in our lives, any unconfessed sin, we want to confess that to you right now. If there's anything that's causing a wedge in our relationship, any reasons why we don't have communication, any excuses or justifications or other distractions that the enemy might be by ringing in our minds. God, I pray that we're able to block that out, that it doesn't easily entangle us any longer because our eyes are focused. They are fixed on Jesus. And may you restore our sight and our vision. God, we thank you for second chances and third chances. We thank you when we got off track. It's as easy as turning the light back on and seeing the next step you have for us. May we fix our eyes on your son, and it's in his name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.